I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is another installment of Convo by Design Presents West Edge Wednesday, a look back at all of the incredible programming from the 2023 edition of the West Edge Design Fair, held at the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica, California. These conversations were held on the stage, designed by Marbe Designs, and presented by BR Home. This is part five in our series entitled Rise of the Machines, how AI will revolutionize the design industry. This conversation is moderated by yours truly and features Rachel Joy Victor, a designer, strategist, and world builder working with emergent technologies and mediums to create computational narrative brand and product experiences where systems and humans meet, right? And Joshua Dawson, film director, known for incorporating the built environment as an essential character in his films. In his body of work, uh, termed speculative climate features, he seamlessly melds CGI and live action to explore water politics, resource extraction, and the impact of climate change on low-income communities of color. Dawson, a master's graduate in advanced architectural studies from the University of Southern California, Joshua's short films have premiered at festivals worldwide and have been showcased on platforms like Canal 180, the National Museum of Australia, and Vice Motherboard. Uh, notably, his work has won the jury prize for best science fiction film at the Oscar qualifying Cinequest Film Festival and a Core 77 Design Award. Recently, Joshua was honored with a comprehensive profile in the New York Times and interviewed by the Weather Channel. Beyond his directorial role, Dawson extends his expertise as a world builder and conceptual design consultant to Hollywood Productions. Thank you to my Combo by Design partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, and Design Hardware for making the podcast possible. And thank you for listening and watching these episodes of the show. For links to all our partners, guests on this episode, Westage Design Fair, Marbay, and Be Our Home, please check the podcast notes for links, and you can find that at convobydesign.com and click the podcast tab. Thanks for watching and listening. Here's um, me. Hello, everyone. How are you? We good? Um, we're going to go ahead and start a little bit early because I figure we'll stop for planes. You know, it's not great doing panels on a, on a running taxiway off the airport, but you know what, we'll, we make it work. Um, thank you all for joining us today. Let me, first of all, say welcome to West Edge. Um, welcome to the stage presented by Be Our Home, uh, designed by Marbe Designs and featuring Don Edward, Edward Paints. Um, every year when I put the programming together for this event, and, and we start ideating this back in March. The idea is, I, I, want, I want to put concepts out there that make you think. And I want them to be relative, I want them to be relevant, I want them to be unique, something that you haven't heard before, but also something that when, when you leave here, it, it will make you continue to think for quite some time. So I'm really excited about the program that we're going to have right now. This conversation features and my two guests, and we're going to talk about them and what they do in a little bit. I always like to try to go outside the industry, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story how this, how this whole thing came about. And I'm, I'm going to think, I'm going to say that we probably have a little bit more in common than different in this regard. So 
I've been using ChatGPT for, for quite some time. When it first came out, we had this conversation. Um, I was watching, does anyone here, have you watched Ted Lasso? Do you watch Ted Lasso? Do you remember the scene with Rupert when they were playing darts in the bar? And Ted said something. He was, he was quoting Walt Whitman. And he, he said he was dropping his kid off at school and he saw a Walt Whitman quote painted on the wall where it said, be curious, not judgmental. And I was thinking about that. And I gotta be honest with you, I, we are probably similar in this, maybe I'm totally different, but I have found myself more judgmental as it relates to AI because there are no rules. And we don't really understand what it does or how it works because there's so much to it. So I, took, I enrolled in a course through MIT, um, a no-code AI and machine learning course. And it was one of those things where at the end of the course, I felt like I knew less than when I started, if that makes any sense. But what I learned outside of the fact that I am not a mathematician, nor do I ever want to be, is that AI is absolutely spectacular. It is going to change our business dramatically. The other thing I learned is we've all been using it for years. And the other things that I learned is it, we're not all going to lose our jobs. Some will. Some absolutely will. And we're going to get into that a little bit too. So this is, here's what we're going to be talking about over the next hour. This is not an AI light course, uh, conversation rather. We're talking about what it is, what tools are available now, what, what the ideas are. And so to have this conversation, I wanted to reach out to people who are far smarter than I, um, who are embedded in this on a daily basis, and I'm really excited for you to meet them. This is Joshua Dawson, and next to him is Rachel Joy Victor. And Joshua, I'm gonna let you introduce yourselves and sort of talk about what it is that you do and how you do it. And Joshua, I'll start with you. Sure, so um, design and architecture has been in my life ever since I was a kid. My father was an interior designer, my mom was a civil engineer. They, uh, you know, they had a two-person firm together. They would work uh, out of you know, our house and they wanted me to come and join their practice and become an architect. I never did. I studied architecture. Um, I trained under Balakrishna Doshi, who was the Pritzker Prize winning architect a couple of years ago. And uh, eventually got a scholarship, came to USC to do my master's in advanced architectural studies. And while I was there, I ended up um, building sets for students who are located across campus at the film school. And uh, that's where I understood that there's something different that they do there, which is they, they do a lot of science fiction thinking and world building, which is not the same as what a lot of architects do. Architects don't think about the future too much. We think too much about the past. History of architecture is a subject that we all study. We don't study the future of it, right? And I think one of the things that I learned is how do you do world building, which is sort of future casting. It was taught by a man who is from the film industry. His name is Alex McDowell. And uh, world building was something that he was doing for institutions, he was doing it for uh, other companies, and it was about building a holistic system and understanding the, the contextual underpinnings of the designs that you're producing, right? So, and looking at that from a very holistic perspective. So I decided to sort of pursue my thesis in that 
avenue uh, while doing my master's and graduated and realized that that's not really a job <laughs> that exists out there. So I worked for every scale of company, starting with a 10-person firm. The 10-person firm merged with HKS, which is a 1,000-person firm, switched to IBI Group, which is an architecture firm that's 3,000, and then that merged with a 35,000 firm. So I have seen the entire spectrum of the AEC industry in action. And, uh, and I'm also a filmmaker, kind of pursuing um, sort of understanding the role that the built environment plays in the future, but doing that by building digital scapes through game engines and also by using, um, you know, just general cinematic tools. And most of them come out in the form of short films that screen at festivals and I engage people from outside of the industry, get them excited about thinking about the future of architecture and then allowing that to sort of feed back into the way I think as, an, uh, as a designer. And I think just being good at one thing makes me better at the other in some ways. So that's just my uh, introduction to this. Love it, Rachel. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, Joshua and I have been like both related to the world building world, but coming from different angles. My educational background was in computational neuroscience and spatial economics. So really thinking about the data side of things but the data side of things as it intersects with experience design. So um, my worlds are kind of where emerging tech meets experience and often working with clients, global brands usually. So, you know, your Disney's, your HBO's, Nike, Crocs, Vans, um, experience design companies, both in actually designing for the future of experiences but then also working within the company to think about how to support those, the creation of it. So what does digital transformation look like? How do we understand the implications of emerging tech and, and design responsibly and smartly for what it means in the context of a company, which I think is related to today to our conversation with AI. I love that. Okay, so it's, it's always fun and a little intimidating to have a conversation with people that you know are smarter than you. So I'm gonna do my best to keep up. Um, having said that, I'm gonna throw out a couple of theories, hypothesis, we've talked about this and I want you to address them. So the first thing that I wanna throw out there is, the first thing about AI to know is that you've been using it for years. If you use Google Maps, if you use CarPlay, if you use Yahoo, if you use Yelp, if you, whatever, you've been using it. And if you send a, a, a report because it crashed, you've been providing what's next generation, next level to make that product better. That's the first thing. The, but what I want your opinion on, here's the theory. I don't believe that artificial intelligence is artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence is augmented intelligence. It's accumulated intelligence. It's not new. There is no godship that can create a brain which will think for itself. Everything that's out there that is in the process of AI has already been put out there, but it's, it's out there and then we feed the machine, we feed the algorithm that then learns, adapts, and makes it better. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's generally fair to say. If we're going into you know, the history of AI, I've been in conversations where people, you know, think that AI is something that sprung up in the last four years, which is definitely not the case. Um, AI as we know it is kind of started in the 1950s, the 1960s, but the AI of the time was very different from what we see as 
AI now in the conversation, right? It was very top-down, rules-based kind of AI systems. And there was a limit to what you could do with it because you had to train every piece of content and logic that went into the system. And so there was a lack of scaling that was possible. So what we saw around the 80s and 90s was the switch to what we see now, which is how do we just throw a bunch of content, a bunch of this training data that we have from the internet, from all of these other sources, and let the system train itself. So when we talk about machine learning or when you hear about deep learning, which is a kind of a subcategory of machine learning, it's that type of AI. It's, it's, it's really just kind of pattern recognition within large data sets. And most of what we're seeing right now in the conversation about AI with ChatGPT, with MidJourney, those are all generative AI systems that are more like deep learning systems like you're talking about. Yeah, um, I disagree a little bit. I think, um, the, I don't think AI is capable of producing original thought, but I do think AI is capable of producing original design work in some ways, and I think that you know, we were talking about what goes into the model and what comes out of it. The input that's coming in is predominantly what's existed in the past, right? It's training from renderings, it's training from existing imagery, but the model, what it's sifting and parsing through, and what it's reading from those images, those can be, you know, the basic principles that we use from how we distill design images when we're looking at a set of precedents or references. So the output that comes out of it could very well produce a new design that you haven't seen before. The thought behind that design, I'm not sure if that can be original. I think that still comes from you know, a set of training that is you know, built on former thinking that humans have lived through. But, uh, but yeah, but that's, that's my answer. And by the way, disagree away with me. I like disagree all you. It's because we're here. We're here to learn <laughs> yeah. about this, and I, and I love this. Remember um, when we started talking, and I mentioned the uh, judgmental part. So I will be honest with you and tell you that I find myself at times being a little judgmental. There is a, and this is not to out anybody or to cast stones, but it's. We have to have this conversation because AI is one of these things that's being led by big tech. Big tech is well known for putting everything out there, breaking things, and then fixing it later along the way using AI and reporting to help fix it. So there's a, there's a consultant that is out there, a design consultant. And I'm not telling you this so that you can make a judgment call of yourself, but I think it's applicable to our industry. So this, this consultant, not a designer, created in mid-journey a vessel, a sink, and then took that vessel, that sink, to a manufacturer who produced it. And if you look hard enough in the, in, in the, uh, the interior design uh, chats and groups, you'll see it, and it's gonna be rolled out at a, at a trade show next year. And it got me thinking, and the problem I had with it was twofold. First, it went into mid-journey, so because everything is, is, a, is a derivative, it's a byproduct, everything that went into creation of this vessel was using intellectual property, design, or, or creative thought that was somebody else's, that, that was put together to create a new product. Being someone who respects IP deeply, I kind of have a problem with that. The second part of that was, the person who created it is not a designer. I do Convo by Design because I love designers and architects. I love what they do. 
I love the work that they produce, and I feel like a manufacturer who has limited resources to create product should be creating the product that designers create, that architects create, because that's what they do. And if you're taking the resources for someone else, um, it doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem right. It seems a little gimmicky, but I could be totally wrong about that. Give me your take. Yeah, so I think that there are a couple facets of that issue, right? Like you talked a little bit about the input and um, the things that feed into these systems. And definitely there, there is kind of a tension there, right? Because these tools are taking and very, um, it's not a direct one-to-one -one representation. These things are part of often large data sets. And in some ways you could argue like humans ourselves are pattern recognition machines, right? Like we're influenced by all of the things we've seen over the, the course of our lives. Um, but I think the thing that gets lost in these tools and, uh, and when someone uses them without training or without kind of the context that comes from working as a designer and from having that background is that you lose context a little bit, right? Um, when, when things go into AI tools, they get very decontextualized because it's all the pieces just put together, spit out, and spit out in terms of what is the most likely arrangement, right? Like it's a probability predictive thing. That's why you talked about like the math piece of it, right? Um, so when we're talking about what it means to make a good design, we're combining so many elements in our head as designers, right? If we're talking about what makes a good musical piece, if we talk about what makes a good um, design of space, all of those things feed into our consideration. When you're working with these tools, the output is only this aesthetic thing, right? It's just like a visual that doesn't have the logic that goes into it, right? So that's why when you see AI outputting things, it, it exists in kind of a context without the normal constraints of what makes a thing work and what doesn't, right? So if you see AI music, it'll be creating beautiful pieces sometimes, but not pieces that are actually playable on human instruments by human people. Or when you see it design um, an object that people can pick up and hold, it's like really pretty, but it's not designed in a way that accommodates like ergonomics and the way that it actually will fit into people's hands. Right, all of those things get lost because it's not able to take those things into into the design context because it's only focused on outputting like an aesthetic visual output. Um, so I think something that gets lost in the conversation is yes, these tools can democratize things. Right, it can make a consultant potentially have you know the ability to design things. But if that consultant isn't coming to it with thinking about all the things that a designer should be thinking about, which is how does this actually function? What is, how do all these pieces look together? Like one of the, the issues with the, the piece that you had mentioned is that, you know, if you looked at it a little closer, it looked like something else, right? Um, so those things are things that a designer would consider, but if you're not coming with that training, then you just see the output and you don't have the lens through which to analyze that output and really pick it apart and know how to make it better because you don't have those starting values in the first place. Uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think, how many times have we have, as designers had a client come up to us and say, you know, I really wanted to be a designer and an architect when I was younger, but I, my dad told me to be an accountant instead, right? And we're grateful that they became accountants because then they can hire us as their architects, right? So I think that that problem, that systemic problem that you're talking about is, is something that's been happening way before this, right, in our industry. And I think one of the things that 
with this specific piece, I think one of the big issues that we're seeing is that it's incomplete, right? I think there is going to come a point where all of that training that you were talking about, you know, the 10,000 hours or more that goes into being a designer, the, you know, late nights that you spent at school training to be an architect, working, you know, in an apprenticeship model, all of that is going to get parsed eventually into these large language models. This idea that training is going to become an important part of being a designer is going to eventually move away. And I know it sounds scary, but it's, it's already happening. 7%, Reba did this survey, the Royal Institute of British Architects, they did this survey recently. No, it's not recent, it's actually from 2017, where they said 7% of all of the homes that are built in the UK are built by licensed practitioners that are registered with Reba. So that means that's a pretty staggering number of homes that are not being built by architects, right? So what is our role in the future? I think that becomes a very important question to ask when these tools are being abused in a way, right, by people who are not designers. But then again, if they have this democratization of training, right, then why wouldn't they use it? I think that there is a we have to sort of establish what it is we're doing as an industry first to kind of hold on to that domain. And I wish the, the kind of, in, the reason why I called it incomplete is because that aesthetic aspect is just one part of the design process, right? I, one of the questions I wish she had used AI to solve was, can we make the most ideal sink? Or can we make this sink that looks this way the most efficient sink that has ever existed? And I think that we have tools now, uh, I don't know if anyone saw the latest Autodesk University presentation, but SolidWorks and these other tools that are used to actually model objects like that are becoming far more intelligent, right? We talked about the error reports that we've been sending. It's been learning from us. It's been studying us. It's been understanding what it is we're doing. We've been using Autodesk products as designers for a couple of decades now. And they're learning, they're observing, and they realized, oh well, okay, they've been branding themselves as a tool, as a creative sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, just just someone that you're supposed to utilize with your own skill set. But now they've become a kind of creative collaborator in a way. And I think that these tools, mid-journey, and you know, these sort of image-based uh, artificial intelligence, generative AI kind of tools, are are one just one aspect of it. There is a chance that she could have put that into a system that really studies it, you know, runs a thousand iterations using those same data points, making it look aesthetically as similar as possible, but have it be the most efficient sink ever. How long have we, have we been trying to find the most, you know, ergonomic chair? How long have we been trying to perfect that? I think artificial intelligence is going to help us get there sooner. I think that's brilliant. I, I really do. Question, just so I understand the room and who we're talking to, by a show of hands, how many designers do we have here? Architects? Consumers? Homeowners? Those who are just interested in AI? Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I love that, I really do, because uh, look, if, if, if we're the same in our thinking, when ChatGPT first got all that, all that pub, what, about March, April, May, right around there? Yeah. And the first thing, I had so many conversations like, oh, designers are all gonna lose their jobs. Why would you? But, but that was the conversation. 
why, why would you need an architect? Because now AI can just do it for you. And then people started looking at some of the images like you put in the prompts. Imagine Frank Lloyd Wright doing a traditional medieval castle. It's like, okay, that's just goofy. That's like right out of Minecraft, right? It's just, it's kind of goofy, but it was interesting. It was borderline between useful tool and toy. Are we beyond the point yet where the tools are not useful toys and they're actually useful tools? Um, I think it depends on context a little bit, right? Like how are we contextualizing these tools? How are we actually incorporating them within workflows? I, one of the industries that I get pulled into a lot of conversations with AI around is the filmmaking industry, which you know recently had a series of strikes where AI was a big issue. Um, and I was at an event the other day where someone was like, we are soon going to have a tool where you just press a button and it makes a movie. And I, was, I took some issue with that kind of statement, right? Like the equivalent would be like, we're going to soon push a, have a tool where we could push a button and design a whole house or design, you know, including all the interiors and how it should look and function and all of those things. Because as an idea, that doesn't really make sense. Could there technically be... Um, you know, a movie generator that exists, or a house generator, or interiors kind of generator that exists, sure. But all, all design kind of exists in a context, right? Storytelling also exists in a context. We're shaped when you make a movie by like, what is the audience? Who's gonna come and see it? What do they care about? What are we gonna make for them, right? Similarly, when we're designing a space, an interior, we're thinking about um, what does this look like? Who's gonna use it? How are they gonna use it? All of those things kind of are, are a piece of it, right? And often when we're using these tools, they're a little bit decontextualized. They're not taking all of those factors into account. To your point, I do think that eventually these tools will get there. These tools are getting smarter, but they, they won't get there without um, understanding how they fit into a workflow, right? They're, without being incorporated into existing tools, without being kind of um, deliberately designed for in terms of what are the things they do well? What are the things they don't do well? One of the things with current AI tools as they stand and how we work with them is that all of the tools for working with them are, especially on the visual side, your parameters of control, your ability to kind of control the output isn't at the asset level, it's at the model level, right? So if you've experimented at all with tools like Midjourney, you're doing like a kind of delicate dance with the prompt that you're putting together with what is the prompt, what is the negative prompt, how much do you want to weight the features of the, of the prompt, like I want a flower to be worth this much in the prompt versus a human versus the sun, right? Like all of those things are, you're kind of throwing at the model and hoping the model understands what you're trying to get at, right? Those tools become more valuable when, you, when you're able to extract that image and be like, I want this image to be 25% bigger, and I want this to look this way. I want to change this texture to look a little bit more like this. Right now, to get to that level with the tools, they can't be decontextualized. They just can't be the one-size-fits-all mid-journey tool. It's that tool fitting within the tools that designers are using for it to really become useful. So there's still that gap right now in terms of these tools are still being incorporated into our go-to workflows. Um, once that happens, I do think we're going to see, you know, more movement towards AI filling pieces of the workflow. But I think there's still going to be this gap. You were talking about, like, how do we lean into what makes us different and what we bring into it, right? Like, 
AI is really good at pattern recognition, AI, and we can use that pattern recognition to identify efficiency. We can use the, the pattern rec recognition to find how do we build more sustainable workflows? How do we build, how are we more um, thoughtful in the terms of the, the way these objects are built and in terms of the resources we're using to create them? We can use AI to do all of those things while bringing you know, the, the context, the design, the thought process into it. Because I think, last point, I know I'm talking for a while, but um, I think something that gets lost in this conversation is people think of ideas in the context of AI as something that exists and then you execute on it, right? As like, you have this idea and now AI just lets you make it. But an idea isn't something that's just static, right? Like an idea is something you shape as you work on it, right? So you, you come up with maybe a loose idea of what you want, you iterate, and then you're like, oh, this, is, this works, I'm gonna go in this direction. And then maybe it's a dead end, and you come back and you try something else. And AI is a great iteration and collaboration partner to help you go through those cycles better. But um, part of what makes the process enjoyable, part of what brings the insight is by treating it as a process and not like a, a button push, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I think that, but the, the idea of the process uh, being the enjoyable part that's what we were talking earlier about, you know, the driverless car, right? The self-driving vehicles that exist today. They're not entirely autonomous, right? You still need a driver behind the seat to take liability, right? If there's an accident that comes through, like Tesla has wiped its hands off any sort of liability that it has to take if there's an accident. And I think that it's something to that effect, I think, with it, when it comes to AI you know, talking about the context, somebody still has to say, go from point A to point B. The car will take you there. You're just helping it, assisting it, guiding you through. Or you could just go on manual and drive it yourself, right? And because you enjoy the process of driving. And I think that there's a certain sort of metaphor there that is applicable, but I also do think that, you know, as designers and as architects, a lot of times our job yeah, we do oversee architects especially, this is true of. They don't necessarily stay until the end of a project is finished construction, right? Like your work stops at the drawing phase. You know, like that's your, your documentation, the design documentation and the construction documentation, that's where it stops. Most of the work these days, there's very few architects. A lot of BIM work has come into the, uh, a lot of BIM modeling has come into the place, so you're just modeling. You're not really drawing anymore. So that's already taking away on one aspect of the process that people have trained over a period of time in school to sort of learn, right? And I think that we have to sort of understand what you were talking about more efficient workflows. I think that more efficient workflows are going to start redesigning the way our architecture firms operate. And I think that when you start thinking about the way BIM has evolved ever since, you know, the days of drafting digitally, it, there's fewer people working on these projects. But there's still the same number of man hours being put in by a single employee, right? You have six instead of 10 employees, but they're still putting in the same hours. And I think that there's efficiency that we can kind of bring to that process, but at the same time, we also have to sort of think about what that would mean for, you know, the architecture firm of the future in some ways. So I love that. So this conversation, there's two parts of it, right? Part of in, in thinking about AI and how it's going to affect you personally, you professionally, your firm, your work, your clients, we have to kind of think about, okay, 
in a vacuum, theoretically, hypothetically, the idea, that's great. But then at the end of the day, if you're a designer, if you're an interior designer, you have the clients that you currently work with, you've got the clients that you're trying to get, you've got, you're chasing down your reselects, you're trying to figure out where your sofa is, your sofa comes in damaged, you're trying to negotiate how to get a replacement or get the money back for it, or you're trying to do your social media, you're trying to hire that junior designer, you're trying to keep track of your firm, you're trying to have a family and a life, you're trying to manage this work-life balance, I kind of feel like AI for the industry is one of these things where A, not everyone's going to lose their job, B, it's going to make things easier by understanding how to do this, it's going to add to the work-life balance because we're not going to work, have to work as hard. So imagine this for a second, and I'm, I'm going to throw this out there, another theory, another hypothesis, and I, I be judgmental, rip it apart. Seriously. But here's my idea. If I'm a designer, how cool would it be to be able to say, okay, so I've got this client, and you're going to do your onboarding with your client, right? And you're going to, you're going to say, okay, we're looking at the kitchen. What do you think about induction? Well, I like induction, but I also love gas. Okay, so we add a certain percentage for induction. We add another percentage for gas. What's the layout? Well, I don't want to do a triangle. I'd rather go with zones. Okay, so we've got the floor plan. We've got the zones, now we've got what kind of cabinetry, what, what do we, what's the functionality? So now we're adding percentages and we're adding values to how a kitchen would work. And then as the designer, you get to come back and you get to smartly, thoughtfully input your prompts and it will give you a kitchen design and then you can put it into a graphics program and then perhaps something cinematic, which can give you both a still so you can look at, if you look at some of these graphics that are manufactured out of thin air, it's amazing. But then you can also get a cinematic view so you can, instead of going to a client and saying, okay, close your eyes and imagine this, or give them a, an image, a, a static one-dimensional, two-dimensional graphic image, you can say, okay, look, here's a video. Let's walk through your kitchen, right? Tell me what you like, tell me what you don't, but based on what you told me, remember, garbage in, garbage out, right? If your client is going to be completely, and all clients are completely honest at the start with budgets and everything, I totally get it. But let's say that you actually have that conversation and you're getting an honest perception of what your client wants. You can spec your cabinetry, you can spec your countertops, you can spec your appliances, you can do the kitchen, you can do the scullery, you can do the walk through the home, the functionality of it, and you did it in a tenth of the time. In real time. Yeah, basically. Is, is, that, is, that, is that a now thing or is that a future thing? Well, um, sorry, you should go ahead, Rachel. That's the pattern we've established. <laughs> I'm like, um, no, I, I think that it's definitely a now thing. It's just not all aggregated in one place. I think our tools are there. Everything is, you know, it's, there's this quote by, I think, William Gibson that said, the future is out there, it's all just not evenly distributed, right? And I think that that's how it is with our industry right now. These tools are just not put into a single package. But yes, it is extremely possible that a client is talking and saying, this is what I want, this is how I want to do it, and you have a kind of you know, a assistant, artificial intelligence model, that's actually taking all of this into consideration and building that real time. 
part of why it does that is because it's already sourced all of the information with respect to your vendor cut sheets, et cetera. It knows what the latest labor rates are. It knows what you know, code specifications are. It knows exactly how long it's going to take to come back from the city, et cetera, et cetera. So it just gives you in real time the design output. So all that's left for you to do is just approve and go ahead and execute. I, think, I, I don't think we're very far away. I think that all of that coming into a single model is not going to be, it's not going to take too long. Yeah, I think the tools individually exist. It's about like linking them together in the right way. And I think um, part of that is getting the right industry relevant data sets together. Because some of these things are, aren't part of like your large language models or these broader models. They might be an industry specific model that you need to create around um, you know, costs of things and inventory and all of those types of things, right? Um, so it's bringing those pieces together. It's um, doing kind of a combination of models. So you're using the best of that aggregated machine learning type intelligence, but introducing more control systems. And then it's also bridging it to the visualization tools so that it's no longer like a 2D tool, but that you're putting the 3D models in place. Each of those tools individually exists, it's just about kind of bringing them together for an industry context. Okay, so let me add another layer to this. So in previous conversations, the estimate was that 1% of the population uses the services, employs the services of a professional interior designer or an architect. I'm thinking through this, and you're probably seeing where I'm going with this. Imagine if in real time, you're able to say, okay, so if 99% of the population is, is not able, willing, financially capable of, of use, utilizing the services of a designer or an architect, now if a designer is forward thinking, learning the tools and being able to produce this, now you can quasi-automate the services so you're not, you're not lessening the value or services of an interior designer or an architect, but instead you're adding value by what the tools are capable of providing so that maybe now, whereas it was just a one percenter opportunity, maybe now you've dropped that down so that 10% of the population was capable of using the services of an interior designer. Were that to happen, hold for plane. Were that to happen, imagine if you had 10 times the clients you have now that aren't calling you on the weekends, that aren't sending you all the emails asking you where your sofa is, but instead you're working with them to solve their, their problems, to solve their issues, and you're working with more clients without having to hire more people because you're letting machines do the work, but it still requires the artistry and the thoughtfulness of the creative to provide the inspiration. I think that's possible. Like, I think that's. Um, I think one of the things I like about this scenario outlining is that a lot of times in these conversations around AI, what happens is this kind of immediate rush to be like, okay, if AI is introducing efficiencies, then the immediate result must be that I no longer have a job because and a machine can do all of it. But I think to your point, like a lot of it is first of all desire and need from audiences isn't a level thing, right? Um, the, the industry need, it doesn't stay static all the time as costs decrease, right? More people might want to take advantage of the skills as you're saying. 
And capacity is also not something that exists independent of the designer to the point that you've made, right? Like with the, with the driver who is watching over an autonomous system, there's still a role for the human in the loop kind of process. So um, I do think that there's a world where um, interior design firms and design firms can be more efficient and thus able to take on more work. That This isn't something that's, oh, I'm putting myself out of a job. I'm just automating maybe the more unpleasant aspects of the work that I do, or I'm able to get this to handle the more logistical pieces that are already hard for me to track down. Now I have a system to actually automate it and, and stay on top of it. So it's actually you know, increasing your efficiency um, and increasing the amount of work that you can bring in rather than kind of decreasing your, your client load in some way. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about that because wh what's to say Autodesk just doesn't give that tool, whatever that you know, holistic AEC tool is, to the client? You know? All of a sudden, they're like, hey, we don't need brand name you know, architect XYZ anymore because Zaha Hadid's company has licensed her rights to us now, so you can have Zaha Hadid buildings with just a single click of a button. Right, and I think that that is where it kind of gets scary. And I, I keep sort of harping on this. It's we need to sort of figure out what it is we as designers are bringing to the table that is different from, but but and not in the sense that you know we're talking about this individual artistic, you know, abstract in many ways, uh, unique signature style because that can be replicated that isn't something that can be digitized it can be quantified now right i don't think that there's i i don't know I, i'm just pretty skeptical about the idea that there's this utopian world that exists where interiors and architects can charge a high fee and they have low overhead and they don't have to worry about you know uh, working okay, okay. etc like i yeah just i'm going to i'm going to push back against your pushing back though where okay. i think that none of these things aren't linear right like it's not it's not that i think the pace of adoption in industry is very cyclical. So yeah, I do think that some of these tools are gonna be like, we've aggregated all of the schematics of this architect or this designer and, and tell their, direct, their client directly, like now you can have this designer at your fingertips, you don't need to use a firm. I think that's gonna happen. But I also think that um, we might see a push towards that for a little while before people realize that there's a limit to what that type of tool can do, right? Like say, say, say a, a homeowner goes directly to that tool and is like, I don't need to hire an interior designer or an architect. I'm just going to use this design function and it tells me it's going to give, you know, give me the, the things. And then they, they implement the tool, the, the instructions and then, you know, use those designs and realize like, oh, there were some certain considerations that just weren't accounted for as a part of this. Like it didn't think about this piece of the workflow or my bathroom doesn't have this thing or you know, some, some piece of the design is missing because it didn't have the human oversight element. And I went, I thought that I could do it all on my own. So I think we're gonna see for sure this kind of um, movement towards these tools being seen as existing on their own and then kind of a pullback as people realize that there are gaps in that, right? That there are gaps in that logic if they're implemented without the kind of oversight of someone who knows what they're doing, who can point out errors in, in the system. Because when these systems are created using solely these generative models, there are gonna be gaps in logic just because of, of how th these AI systems are trained. Like, 
it doesn't have this top-down logic, right? It's aggregating based on percentage. So by default, there, there are going to be human errors, I mean, machine errors as a part of these systems. So I think, we're, I think what we will see is, yes, some of what you're saying, but I think then there will be a course correction when people realize that these systems on their own aren't as great as we've kind of propped them up to be. I, and, and no, I agree. I just don't think it's going to move from 1% hiring our services to 10% okay. hiring our services. And by the way, it was a hypothesis. No, no, of course. So yeah, I yeah, appreciate yeah. the pushback. Okay. No, no, I really no, do. And, and to your point, totally get it. But I think, look, at the end of the day, we're, we're having the conversation because we don't have all the answers. Right. And in trying to figure this out, we're, we're thinking about this hypothetically because let the thought, let the thought leadership become the manner in which designers think so that you can start to envision and ideate ways to get ahead of the curve. Look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. As a journalist, it concerns me. I, I'm a creative too, right? And I think about, well, what happens in a world where AI voices get better? where the writing gets better, where the creativity gets better. And then it's a matter of, well, look, you've got an AI character. You want a South African man in, in his early 30s because that's what the data says people want to listen to. And he's far smarter than I am because you've got all this information that was put into an algorithm and he knows everything there is to know about design and architecture dating back to however far back you want to go. And then you put into a prompt, give me a 5,000 word essay about whatever, and then have this AI voice create a show. We could do that today. And you know what? If we're being dishonest about it as a publisher, you could listen to it and not know that it was an artificially generated voice. We could do that today. If we do that today, I'm competing with someone that doesn't exist. So we're having these conversations because it gives us an opportunity to talk to people who know what they're talking about and think about how we can address it in the future. And I'll, I'll give you a real world, real world scenario. So a couple months back, if you notice, it's really funny. So go to some of your favorite, if you're designers and you're, you have a blog um, and you're doing this, I'm sorry. I apologize for outing you, but it's really funny. If you go and look at the blogs, on, are you laughing because you do this? Cool, I got you, I got you. Um, you go and you look at a designer's website and you click on their blog and they're still dating their blog entries and you go and you look, it's like, wow, that's amazing. Their blog entries stopped in 2015, and they started again in 2023. That's amazing. And you know what's even more amazing? The writing is like perfect. There's no grammatical errors, but there's all kind of error, gross factual errors. Like it's just like, wow, I didn't know Frank Lloyd Wright was designing in the 1980s. But it put it in there, and it's so funny because if you read some of the blogs, they're just really funny because the the thing about ChatGPT is you'll get some pretty serious gross factual errors, but the grammar is completely perfect. So there's folks doing that, I'm not saying you are, I'm just throwing it out there, but, but there's a lot of designers that, that have done that. And you doing it too? No? Okay. Um, the next thing I wanted to cover is 
how does, because I think this is, this is a really important aspect, it's kind of like the aspect too, where if you can ideate an idea for design that you want to show your client, and you've taken good information, prompted correctly, now you've got, you've got a room, you've got a kitchen, okay? Where does AR and VR fall into that? Like now you have the idea, now you've got the kitchen, now you can show them cinematically on a computer what that looks like. Or you can put the goggles on, goggles on and actually walk them through the room. How close are we to that? I mean, the tools for that are definitely getting better. If you followed, Apple is releasing their Apple Vision Pro headset with a focus specifically on mixed reality. They're, they're calling it spatial computing now, um, with the idea that you're not just seeing things fully in a virtual context of space, but that you're seeing things you know, overlaid over the real world. So you can, you know, if you're doing like renovations or if you're adding interior like design to an existing space, you can take them through the room and, and show where the pieces would fit in in context, right? So there are neat things kind of coming out in that space, in that world. The tech is getting, the tech kind of had its own hype cycle, you know, at, at different points. And now I think it's actually getting to a usable spot, right? Like it's that gap between like, Five to ten years ago, people were excited about it, and now it's actually becoming usable, <laughs> much much like I think we'll see with AI. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think that the tech is definitely the sort of fidelity on the rendering, the ability to use less computational power to actually render in real time. All of that is definitely sort of all Both of that is <laughs> all of that is definitely sort of getting better as we speak. I think where AI kind of becomes a part of this is. Uh, you know, in the kind of micro details of things, you know, like if IKEA is able, IKEA I know had an augmented reality demo for an app where you can actually choose from their shelf and then use your AR headset to figure out where all of their pieces go. I think what would be interesting is if, an, if you know, it, if the IKEA app itself starts to recommend based on you know, the space that you're actually looking at, and it's able to sort of develop custom pieces to fit within those kind of LiDAR-scanned rooms that's being processed by the augmented reality glasses. And I think that is where the future of this technology is certainly going to go. So, and by the way, the, the, the prompt for that question, uh, I'll tell you a short story, happened yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday. So, um, sorry, day before. I was... Um, I was moderating a panel conversation, and I'm going to show them some love. Um, the guys from HMC Architects. The, the panel conversation, which was held in the showroom in, in LA, the idea that we were talking about was safety and security in design. And because look, especially if you live in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, any major city, who doesn't think about crime and safety more now than we have in the past. Designers, architects, your clients are thinking about their safety, but they don't often ask about it because it's kind of like they don't ask their designers questions because they just don't put two and two together and think, well, I, I'm concerned about my safety. I wonder if my designer can help me with that. Most can't because they don't think about it. But these architects, we were talking about it, and I was, I was a little stunned, which doesn't happen very often, but while we were having this conversation, I, I was asking about VR, NAR. And they said to me, oh, we've been using that for years. And I was like, how? So the guys at HMC, they specialize in schools, hospitals, civic centers, public buildings. 
and we started talking about school shooters, which is something that just sucks that we have to talk about that. When I was a kid growing up in LA, none of the schools had perimeter fencing. My kids went to school in Manhattan Beach. We didn't have perimeter fencing around the school when they started, but you know what? Every school has it now. Not because it looks good, not because they wanted to spend the money on it, but because they had to. And so we started talking about schools and later hospitals, and they said, I, was, I said, how do you use these VR, AR tools in your designs? And they said, well, we put the goggles on, and then we walk through a simulated building, and we try to figure out where there's a blind spot of a three by three. I was like, a three by three? They're like, yeah, because that's where a shooter's gonna crouch. It's like, oh, that's dark, but it's real. So they're looking at designing schools where you can figure out, because metal detectors don't work. Perimeter fencing is a deterrent, it's not a fix. So they're looking in VR, AR, how this works. Imagine if you're a designer and you put on your CV that you specialize in safety and security design. Let's just talk about the economics for a minute. You can charge more as a designer. You can also offer something as a designer that other designers aren't offering because they don't, they don't think to do it. That's a financial thought process. That's a now thing that you can offer. Because look, at the end of the day, you're professionals. You're professionals who have families, who want work-life balance. You want to do your jobs better. Creatives always try to get better at what they do. That's a real-world scenario. So this is a part, as, as we kind of wind this down a little bit, let's talk about the practical nature, the tools, the, the applicable nature of the tools available, and how we can learn to use them without, I mean, look, show of hands, who wants to go back to college and relearn how to do something? Nobody. Oh, stop it. <laughs> because you've got the time, right? Who's got the time to go back to college and learn how to do more stuff? One, thank you. Thank you for being honest, I appreciate that, but that's one out of, uh, we don't have time. Look, I took that course at MIT and it was not easy, it was not fun. I, by the time it was over, I was throwing a party. Back to the tools. What tools are available? How do we use them? How do we learn them? How do we apply them? I think when you, you talk about AR and VR... Hold for plane. I think when we talk about AR and VR, it's not just about the tools for output becoming more readily available. It's the, the tools that are available for creation in that context. So when we talk about like real-time um, environment creation, right? They're game engine tools like Unity or Unreal that are being used now for workflows. They, they were originally created in the context of, you know, I want to create a game that where the game and the environment adapt to me as I play it. But now those tools are having applications across industries, right? They're being used for modeling, for architectural scenarios, for urban design scenarios, for all these kind of contexts where we're thinking about space and environment and some of what you're talking about with like predictive simulation. Like uh, one of the areas where I'm in a lot of conversations in is the area of digital twins, right? Like how are we building one-to-one -one representations of city architecture or even house architecture with all of the real-time data 
from that home or from that building feeding into these models. So then you're able to track energy consumption in this model, or you're able to track, you know, when is lighting being used, when is heating being used, all of these different things, and model how to build more efficient systems and see, okay, this is these are areas where more energy is being consumed than needs to be consumed. How do we like you know, use that AI in the background to automate, to build, you know, to spend less money or maybe to build more secure systems of um, automating when, which doors get locked or recognize which people enter and which entrances so you know how to track security in the building better, right? So these types of tools um, aren't just about the output of like, you know, taking your client through like the headset to visualize things, but in the day-to-day -day be becoming a tool for future planning and then kind of perpetual planning of like once the building is up, like what is your role as designers maybe in facilitating um, the system being as optimal as it could be, right? Of like, this is the design as we created it, but now as we see the patterns of how people are using the space, we realize that this area gets underserved or this area doesn't have quite as much seating as we'd like it to or all of these things. And then you can be part of, you know, as designers, uh, the ongoing conversation of what does that space look like and how can we make that space more optimal? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think that scenario testing for optimization and efficiency is one of the most important parts and it's going to be the most near future aspect to this particular uh, you know, conversation, I think, because you're going to run thousands of simulations to find the weak spots, to find the, the, the weaknesses. Uh, and I remember it just brought me back to a client who actually came to one of the firms that I was working in who said he wanted to, you know, have it a fully surveilled building and he wanted to use one of the machine learning systems to figure out how can we make sure that there's as few cameras put in there, but the cone of vision is the most efficient and optimal. And that sounds extremely dystopian in a way, but at the same time, it's something that he really wanted. Uh, but I, and I think, but I, I will say this, and I feel like I have to sort of say it in some ways, uh, Dr. Joy, uh, I think I'm going to mispronounce her name, Bulamwimini, I think is her name, and she did this documentary called Coded Bias, right? And it was about how uh, a lot of artificial intelligence isn't able to detect uh, people of color, people of a certain skin tone. And that is becoming extremely, that's becoming extremely dangerous because uh, those sort of facial recognition systems are being deployed in countries like the United Kingdom where they're trying to curb, you know, where they're trying to make these cities safer. And the models are not trained on sufficient enough data to be able to, you know, figure out that this person, just because he's of a certain color, isn't a terrorist or isn't, you know, a, a shooter. And I think that these are kind of important things that we need to start thinking about, but not just, not just at that big security level urban scale, even on renderings, right? How many times have we had an entourage of already existing Photoshop uh, characters that we sort of deploy into our renderings just to sort of say, hey, like, look at how affluent this place is that they're building, which is, you know, in an area that is predominantly, you know, uh, black and brown communities, right? And I think that that leads to a lot of, uh, Problems, not just with respect to how you're getting your uh, project approved by the city, but also who's funding it, you know, and uh, making sure that marginalized people, uh, you know, people of color, women have safe spaces that are not being trained on 
all of this bad habits that we've developed over a period of time as architects and designers to sort of do that, predominantly because most of the people that are running these big architecture firms that get these commissions are, you know, affluent straight white men, right? And I think that there's, there's a conversation to be had about this where we're able to make artificial intelligence a lot more ethical, a lot more equitable, and train it and make sure that it's not trained to be racist in a way or sexist in a way. And I think that those are important, uh, th those are the most important factors to be taking into consideration, I think, at this point, just so we're not accelerating. Yeah, no, great point. So where we are now, I'm curious, does anyone have any questions? Okay, good. I was going to say, because you don't have questions or because you're scared to... Okay, good. Awesome. This is a really good conversation. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm kind of worried about AI a bit because it seems like other tools that we've had that have made us more efficient have kind of lulled us into this sense of good enough, right? I mean, I can operate Canva. It doesn't make me a good graphic designer. I, I can run a, you know, a good digital camera that doesn't allow me to compose a photograph the way a photographer could. Are you worried at all that AI is going to turn us into a society even more where it's like good enough because it's cheap? Um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly why, because it's cheap, right? And I think that that is the part that scares me. It's not so much the tool that's scaring me or the fact that AI is becoming a creative collaborator that's scaring me, because I know that I would, I'm trained in design and I know that I will use it to the best extent possible and I know that I'm not gonna let my creativity get overshadowed, but it is the fact that using it is a lot cheaper. And a lot of the products and things that we're seeing out there today are, you know, efficient economically. Right? That's why we have big boxes that are maxing out square footage instead of having creative architecture on our skyline. And I think that that is where the danger of artificial intelligence for me comes into play most. Not, but I do think that there's, there's value in also thinking about how we can start expanding the discipline beyond thinking about just the exact built environment in its built form. I think that architects have a lot of other you know, uh, different avenues that we can branch out into. You know, for me, I'm doing a lot of gaming environments. You know, that's something that requires the skill of a lot of architects. Set designing, design building. Like, these are things, these are avenues where you don't have to say 10,000 hours anymore and you can just, you know, sort of use these tools. Fashion design is another, uh, I have a great friend who's an architect turned fashion designer. And I think that these are definitely these allied avenues where we need to sort of go back not in terms of like the rigidity that the Bauhaus was bringing, but it just in terms of thinking of architects as these holistic designers and not just people that build boxes that are maxing out FAR. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm just gonna quickly speak to the aspect that you said about cheap, like being able to make things cheaply, right? Um, I think to the point that Josh was making earlier, the move fast and break things kind of mentality of the tech industry sees those opportunities and kind of accelerates the, the, the use of this tech and is like, wait, this, this used to cost how much and we can do it for how much now? Let's implement it everywhere. But I think that's where when you look at the, the course of how futures implementation, uh, implementation of future tech happens, 
there's always this kind of like overuse and then this pullback when you realize what it's not good at. So I think like, I think we are gonna see like an over implementation of AI systems and an over kind of reach of what's possible, of what people think it can do possibly. And then we'll see the errors that arise or we'll see the you know, lack of creativity and the sameness that arises from just implementing AI systems. And then I think there's gonna be a little bit of a course correction of like, okay, we can't just use these systems. Let's, let's try to think about the, the role that human creativity brings, the role of, of, of change, because yeah, the, the sameness of AI, I think, is a fundamental concern with just implementing AI systems. Michelle? Hi there. Um, it's, it's, my name is Michael, and I actually, no worries. Um, I have a, my bachelor's degree is in computer science, and my master's degree is in interior architecture. So, the two things that those fields have in common is you are often working with people who don't, either one, they don't have the language skills to articulate what their issue is, so you're helping them with their, with what is unseen, what is what not thought about. Because often they'll come to you and they think they have one problem, but in actuality, they're experiencing another problem. And it's up to you to, as a designer, whether it be of computer systems or techno technological solutions or of spatial design, is to lead them through those conversations so you unearth what it is not or has not been said or what they didn't know they needed. And that will always be the value of a good designer. The other part is, you know, as, as a black woman, I'm really very much concerned about the, that underlying data store that feeds all the crap into AI that produces bad design and bad answers. Example, watched something on today's show. They're like, oh, we'll have chat GPT do our Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and I want a turkey, two sides, and a dessert. Well, you know, it was a great dinner, it was okay, people liked it, but if you served that to, you know, my friends and family, they would be like, there's no mac and cheese, there are no collard greens, and there's no sweet potato pie, and it was just okay. There was no cultural relevance to it. So there are some huge challenges. Also for the, you know, um, people with physical challenges, there's not a lot of huge data set out there about that. So there's just, be careful, you know, using AI to go out there and be like, ooh, isn't this the best? You still need some human um, analysis. Agreed, 100%. I think those are all great examples of, of where the gaps come in with relying solely on AI systems. Hi, I was hoping to come away with a couple of um, tools or websites or something that would be relevant for the design industry, maybe as a leg up and to incorporate into all the different aspects of what we do as designers and architects, if you guys know of any. Just quick question. Are there any specific tools you've played with already? Mostly photo editing, um, like marketed as AI photo editing aspects of how to alter like portfolio images or the like. Um, I have briefly touched on some like uh, 
copy editing with um, like asking it to create certain things, but I just kind of thought it was garbage, so I gave up on that. Um, but really, like, there's so many aspects to running a business, whether it's project management or delivery tracking or the creative part or, but like, the accounting A to Z, um, especially for small companies. So I was hoping to learn from the session more, like, how is this positive in the leg up rather than like, do I think my job's gonna go away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think in terms of introducing efficiency in your day-to-day -day workflow, um, I know a lot of people are using like auto transcript services like, like Otter AI or Fireflies as a way to like jump in on their video calls, summarize the meeting, find the takeaways, all of those kind of things. Um, for like project management and things like that, a lot of existing project management tools are already incorporating AI things within their product more than like there being separate products. I think usually the ones that already have a core tool and are incorporating it, they're doing a better job. So like if you go to Notion, they now have AI features that like help you break things down. Or if you go to Google, if you like put in a task, then it'll be like, maybe these are the subtasks you should include as a part of that, right? In the project management side of things. Um, on the visual side of things, we have tools like Midjourney and Dali but then there are tools that build on it, like Kyber AI or Pika Labs or Runway that let you get a little bit of movement in the photos as well. I will say like the transition from 2D AI to 3D AI is still really bad. That's still an area that, if you see a, a, a company saying that they're using generative AI to do 3D, they're probably kind of lying about it because <laughs> that's still not an area that's very good, but um, hopefully those are some like starting areas to, to explore. Yeah, I'll, I'll, just, um, I'll just say, just keep up to date on Adobe, uh, because Adobe is bringing in a lot of, you know, just Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, they have a whole section where they were beta testing for the last couple of months. They had like their beta versions of these particular tools. Uh, I, would, I would just make sure that you're keeping up to date. You know, you might need to go into your creative suite and then just go hit the update button. So you're getting the most recent version of what their beta update is, but yeah, just Adobe is going to surpass most of these, you know, big kind of competitors that they have. Uh, and because they have the underlying Yeah, and uh, because, you know, they've been working with designers for the longest period of time. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome. Any more? Anyone else? Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, I'm a designer, and my brother is a contractor. My uncle's an architect. We're trying to start this new design firm in an untapped market where there's some wealth coming in based on corporations moving there. Um, I wanted to get your feedback on... I've been utilizing a lot of the project management tools and implementing AI into the startup, if you will. I'd rather hire humans... But given the startup, you know, investment is limited, I'm really trying to implement like the most cost effective AI methods into the business starting up and then hopefully you just building off them with humans. I, I think I prefer humans, but given that it is a startup, we're limited. Yeah. Well, I, so what was the question? So tools to accumulate everything to start a business. I think... Depending on what the applications are, like if you're doing more logistical kind of applications, I would lean into, like I mentioned, like the core tools that you're already using 
are incorporating AI features. And those, like part of what makes AI work in specific instances, it's all about the contextual intelligence of like, does it know your data sets? Does it know the way you respond to emails? Does it know the way um, like you schedule meetings? Like do you schedule with a five minute gap in between, right? Like all of those things, um, you're not gonna, if you go to like a totally new tool that's not pulling in your data, you're gonna kind of run into issues, right? Because then it's more trouble than it's worth to get those things up and running and formatted to your needs. So if you, if you can find tools that you're already using that are beginning to incorporate these AI features or that have additional AI plugins, that's probably the most useful way to start. Um, and then the other thing is to use like ChatGPT or ChatGPT agents that are kind of, GPT agents that are coming out to kind of build kind of specific targeted um, uh, agents for you basically that are like, act like a production planning person with these types of constraints and with these types of deliverables and taking in this input. And if you create that agent, then you can have kind of these conversations with it um, where you feed it in specific data and you get the contextual output that you need. That's something that GPT is moving towards where you can create these micro agents for really targeted needs, at least in the short term, to at least be another virtual personality you're talking to that gives you another point of view. Yeah, I just, I just want to make sure we're holding him to the fact that he hires humans later. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I, I have nothing to add to what Rachel said. I, I love that. And with that, first of all, thank you for your time. Like, time is the one thing we don't get more of. So thank you for coming out. Thank you for coming to West Edge. And again, if you enjoyed the conversation, we covered a lot of ground here, right? So if you subscribe to Convo by Design, this, pod, this episode will air uh, sometime in January, February. And you can re-listen and... Um, Thank you very much, Rachel, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for thank having you. me. Yep. By the way, if you have any personal questions and you're sticking around, one you didn't want to ask in front of everyone else, come on up. <laughs>